Now, Steve Punt continues his assignment as Radio 4's very own gumshoe. This week, he investigates the strange case of a disappearing pilot. It's another case for Punt P.I. This is Punt's private eye. I'm not here right now. Please leave a message. Punt Tracy. Listen very carefully. Got a little Scottish sea mystery for you to mull over. From 1975, I need you to find out what really happened to the man who wasn't there. A plain, yet not simple one, this. See what you discover. 1975. Endless strikes, the IRA, appalling fashion choices, and a bestseller list topped by the Bermuda Triangle and its inexplicably disappearing planes. Putting Trace's clues into Google, I come across an incident on the Isle of Mull in December 75, involving an inexplicably disappearing plane. Like Richard Hannay in The 39 Steps, I would have to head north to Scotland. Unlike Richard Hannay, however, no romantic steam trains were available. But the hour-long flight will give me a chance to look through the cuttings. My fellow passengers would probably rather I didn't sit reading plane crash reports, but I discreetly discover the basic facts. Just before Christmas 1975, Peter Gibbs, flying enthusiast, musician and property developer, took his girlfriend Felicity Granger to a favourite hotel on the Isle of Mull. Whilst there, he heard that he could rent a plane locally, a Cessna 150. They flew around looking at property, and then on Christmas Eve, the night before his 54th birthday, he took off alone and was never seen alive again. Heading along a glen, it's not the busiest road in the world. Back on the ground, I'm heading to the same hotel, although my head is still in the clouds. It's like distracting views to the right now. Sound effects car skidding into the sound of mull. I'm also playing a little game of I spy things that give you away as an urban type. Caution Otters Crossing. What a brilliant sign. You don't see that sign in London. Such is my wariness of jaywalking otters that I don't notice a line of impatient drivers stacking up behind, hooting, cursing, and at the first chance, overtaking. He's doing about 80 miles an hour. And he's just hurled loose chippings all over the hire car. Wanton abandon. Four miles to open. Oh no, four miles on a bike. That may be the low road. I finally arrive at the port of Oban, and just as Peter Gibbs did 40 years ago, I take the ferry to Mull, along with a multinational selection of tourists, all busily filming the impressive scenery. Although the announcer on the ferry sounds like he's seen it all before. On board ship, I have time to mull over when I should use the joke about mulling things over. I decide not to use it yet. I'm on the road to Tobermory, inevitably thinking about the Wombles and how hopefully I will indeed be making good use of the things that I find. In fact, childhood books seem to be everywhere. I can't believe there's a place here called Fishnish. They let Dr Seuss name their towns for them. Finally, I reach the log cabin-style hotel, the Glen Forcer, where Peter Gibbs spent his last night. It sits on the edge of the Sound of Mull, and it's probably the only hotel in the UK with its own airfield. Have a safe one. Bye.
you get your microlight guys who are just popping in there. You get people who fly up for lunch from Glasgow because it's 40 minutes. And because in the summer it's daylight here till quite late, they can fly up for dinner. It's a go-to place if you're a pilot. I seem to have arrived at microlight rush hour and reception gets busy with hearty types brandishing maps. So I head down to the grass airstrip to meet David Howitt. You know, it's a good airfield, quite long. It's 780 metres or 2,600 feet, if you think about it, in old money. David's family ran the hotel for years, and he still lives in the airfield bungalow. In 1975, he was in charge of the airstrip and knows all the details. They've left the 07 here, but they never got round to changing the 26, so it says 07. It should be an exact reciprocal, of course. Right. But it isn't, you know, because it's... He's overestimated my knowledge of runways. But never mind, I steer him back to December 1975. We kept the um, hotel open during the winter months because the locals, they brought in quite a bit of business. Right, right. Um, you know, we used to have quizzes and things on a Friday night and a Saturday and uh, it was quite a busy bar trade. I sometimes did waiting myself, you know, like I would carve the joints up, you know, the venison or whatever it was at, at night time. It was the night before Christmas. Venison carving was finished. David and his wife were settling down for the 1970s Yuletide ritual of watching Kojak when they heard an aircraft engine starting. So I came down here. I came out straight away with binoculars. Met my brother at the back door. I said, what on earth is that madman doing? Now, that is just exactly the same as Gibbs would do. And it was here that he turned the lights off, on, and then off again. Anyway, the aircraft took off, got airborne pretty quickly. But when the aircraft goes downwind, and before it turns uh, onto the base leg, it gets behind these trees here. As hotel guests realised that the plane was making a circuit, they rushed to the upstairs bar to watch the landing. The airfield was almost never used at night as it had no runway lights. There was no moon, and the spectators in the bar turned the lights off inside so they could get a better view. Uh, torches, two torches. I've got them here somewhere. Felicity Granger had been left at the end of the runway to put out a couple of small battery-powered lights to guide him back. I mean that. That's a little pifco. I mean, totally and absolutely useless. There were other oddities about the flight. Some witnesses thought they saw two people moving the torches on the runway, while others claimed Peter Gibbs had spent an unusually long time warming up the engine. And then there was the question of the paperwork. There were strange things, you know, like Peter Gibbs, you know, his licence had expired and he was supposed to have sat a, a general flying deck. Which he hadn't. He told the plane's owner that he did have a licence but hadn't brought it with him as he hadn't expected to be flying. It sounded reasonable, but is taking someone's word enough? I hire cars and have done, you know, since the early 60s. And if I hired a car out of somebody and the car went missing... Mm. That kind of doesn't look good. For him, does it? <laughs> you just answered your own question. The plane did not return. After ten minutes, David began to worry. Fearing that Gibbs had ditched in the water, he went to see if he could spot anything. Now, so what I did is I took the hotel's blue Cortina CMF 523. There was driving sleet. I mean, I knew that if it stayed like that, there was no way the aircraft could possibly have got back in. So I turned down here, and there's the um, old cemetery. It's quite interesting, apparently it's, it's haunted, rotten. And they tried to put a roof on it time and time again, and it just, the fairies came and took it away, so they said. Do you remember the room, room numbers you were in yesterday? 
is it two I'm in? Have a look and see if you can find where room 14 is. My mother, I think it was, had the room exorcised. Apparently there are all sorts of nasty things happened in uh, room 14. Never mind the Bermuda Triangle, suddenly I'm in The Shining. I drove the car over there and put the headlights, dipped them onto the water and swept the whole area across here right. to see if there was any light on the water or if he crashed it. Got pretty close to the edge actually to have a, a good look at it because I, th I thought he, he had undershot. So who was Peter Gibbs? Why was he taking off in the dark on Christmas Eve? And how good a pilot was he? He shot down four flying bombs just after the invasion of Normandy. Pretty good 30 years earlier then. There you are. His red. son Michael Gibbs gets out his father's logbook. Flying bombs. And he had a very bad prang actually. A pole crashed into the back of him. He spent three months in hospital. His legs were in a very bad condition. Petrol all in his wounds and they had to glue together his kneecaps. He shouldn't really have carried on flying, but he did. His passion for flying continued after the war. He flew chipmunks, jodels, and bought his own tiger moth. He was a bit, how shall I say, impetuous. I mean, the whole adrenaline thing of flying and flying low, as I did quite often with him. He had a huge stock of hair, prominent eyebrows, and um, beautiful hands. Gibbs was an excellent violinist, setting up his own string quartet and leading several of Britain's major orchestras. But he also seems to have brought a rock and roll attitude to the world of classical music once letting loose a bag of live grasshoppers during a performance and famously publicly berating the conductor Herbert von Karajan for alleged arrogance. By 1975, he had fallen out of favour. Gibbs, that is, not von Karajan. But what was he doing taking up a plane on a moonless Christmas Eve? For him to take off, from Glen Forster on that evening is quite in keeping. I've seen him landing with uh, candles in jam jars, and I think he was just purely wanting to see what the, the circuit would like at night should he ever be caught out. I, I know that's foolhardy to others, but to me, I quite understand the rationale. He just got caught out. He must have had some form of engine failure, and he went in short of the threshold. Over Christmas, a huge search-and-rescue operation looked for both Peter and his Cessna, but found nothing. Months went by, and there was no sign of plane or pilot. There were even rumours that he might have flown off to start a new life somewhere. But the following April, a local shepherd found a body, lying across a fallen larch tree 400 feet up a hillside. There was no sign of the plane, but the body was identified as Gibbs. David Howitt points me towards the tree where Donald McKinnon made his discovery. You can still see the branch, the stub. He was sort of straddled across this. In fact, the fellow McKinnon had to take a saw and cut the branch off to remove the body because, I mean, the only thing that was holding the body together was, were the clothes. He was in a state of terrible decomposition. There was no question about it. He'd been walking down the hill. How was well, it he obvious? was walking, he was facing due north. Right. But he'd come down this little slope and embankment, and I think he'd fallen. And, you know, it had sort of caught him between the legs. But there, there was a really gruesome sort of aftermath about, oh, sometime after, I can't remember when, a former girlfriend of his turned up. Right. And she asked me to take her up and show her the exact place. And where his head had gone back onto the heather, the scalp had actually detached. Oh. And she had a plastic bag and she put, you know, the things as a memento into these bags and took it away. You're the first person ever to know that incident. I don't think I've ever mentioned that. No, no. 
Any detective likes to be the first to hear new information, but in this case, I might make an exception. I want to talk to the forensic pathologist who examined the body, but before I check out of the Glenforsa, I feel I should check out the mysterious room 14 that David mentioned, where strange things had supposedly happened, and Peter Gibbs had slept the night before he disappeared. The current owner takes me down the Scandinavian-style corridors. We find the door mysteriously locked. Maybe someone does live in here. Or maybe something clocked the door. But the room is disappointingly empty. All I can sense is a creeping fear that I'm wasting his time. You've made me feel guilty for not feeling vibes now. <laughs> not doing my job properly. <laughs> I'm beginning to think I don't have a ghost of a chance of unravelling this story when fortunately some hard evidence turns up. The Scottish National Archives send me a copy of the Fatal Accident Inquiry from 1976. From it, I learn firstly that there were no traces of salt water found on the body, suggesting that Peter Gibbs did not land in the sea after all, and secondly that the post-mortem was carried out by a Dr Maclay, then the Chief Medical Officer for Strathclyde Police. You saw the body in situ, is that right? No, he had been moved. I'd been moved? Yes. He was moved down to Glasgow for post-mortem. OK. He was clothed and I just found this a very odd problem to be faced with. What's weird about this? Well, it's weird that the body didn't turn up fairly quickly after the, the crash. That's not very usual and one would perhaps expect fairly major injuries coming out of a, of a plane like that, but he had a minor limb injury. Uh, there was nothing to suggest that he had come out of a plane flying at any speed at all. The man was in a plane accident but was virtually unscathed. The more I learn about this case, the less I understand it. Was there any other way the body could have got there? There was nothing to suggest that uh, he had died in one place and been taken and put in another place which would have been homicidal. Were there other sort of standard tests that were done? Was it tested for poisons or...? Yes, there was a toxicological search for any poisons or, or medicines or alcohol. Or to, to the best of my recollection, nothing was found by the, the scientists. And what about the question of salt water? The result of, of this search for salt water was negative. It did not confirm the suggestion of salt water being present. My recollection is that the body was also tested for those little organisms which exist in the sea, right. but didn't help us along the way. So those tests were all negative? As far as I recollect, yes. But does that mean we can definitively say that he was never in the sea? But of course he had been lying exposed to rainwater for four, four months, was it, or thereabouts? Yes. And I should imagine that much of the fresh water coming down out of the sky would be large in quantity, and although it's not my area at all, I would have thought that uh, it would have washed away any salt water present. What was the judgment as to the actual cause of death? Well, in the absence of anything else, we were reduced to seeing that he had died 
simply of exposure and the consequences of uh, loss of heat, loss of will to, to struggle, because where the body was, it was not far to a road. My own road is far from clear. The crucial question was, where was the plane? The discovery of Gibbs's body on land sent the search parties back over the island, dragging the inland locks and deepest woods, but no trace was found. It wasn't until a decade later, in September 1986, that a local clam diver called George Foster came across the remains of a Cessna at the bottom of the Sound of Mull. It is said that as he peered into the cockpit, he saw just a lobster sitting at the controls, although I looked through the accident report and couldn't find the relevant claws. A body 400 feet up a hill and a plane 100 feet below the sea. I dived off these rocks here. Local diver Richard Greaves. Whereabouts is the wreckage of the plane? About 300 yards straight out from where we're standing in this wee bay here. Apparently in the, when they found the plane, the windscreen was out of it and the doors were locked. I think if he knew he was going to uh, crash, as he must have had some warning, he would have had at least the door that he could get out of, yeah. not unless he was committing suicide. Two, three hundred yards, you say? Yeah. I really find it very hard to believe. I wouldn't like to swim that, even in my diving suit. Have you ever swum in these waters without a wetsuit on? No. Well, I don't even use a wetsuit. It's a dry suit, which is eight millimetres thick. And when he got ashore, why would he cross the road? doesn't make sense to walk up a steep hill after having crossed the road. Over the years, I've thought about it, and I just don't see that what has come up with reports could possibly be true. Are things a bit fishy? Richard's got me hooked. A friend of mine was talking to some farmers up outside Oban. They said on the night of the crash, they heard a plane go over the top of their farm. At the time, about 10 o'clock, you know, they never paid any attention to it, but the fact that uh, I was told about it today made me wonder if, by chance, the plane had been away over on the open side or where it had been, because we don't know exactly when it crashed. We just know it didn't turn up, and a lot of talk has been about it. It might have gone to Northern Ireland and, you know, something to do with uh, the IRA or... How long would that have taken? About an hour, I think, an hour right. and a half. Could have gone just about anywhere. It's just fuel tank was full. It could have been dumped at any time. You'd have thought that the authorities, for all it would have taken to lift a wee plane, only weighs half a ton, 1,500 weight, and all you need is a couple of airbags and that's it, you know. So you seem quite sceptical about the official version of events. I am indeed, and the more I think of it, the more uh, I doubt it. There's too many things that don't ring true. Is Richard ringing my bell? Nothing else so far has pointed to Peter having any Northern Ireland connections, and Christmas Eve in front of a hotel full of spectators seems like an odd time for trying anything secret. But if a 300-yard swim through near-freezing water seems far-fetched, are there other possibilities? Retired engineering academic Alan Organ has spent years looking at the Mull air mystery and writing up his thoughts. On the west coast of Scotland near Ullapool, he shares his life with a lupine companion. 
Storm is a Siberian Husky, traditional grey and white. Oh, and he's got one blue eye and he's got one brown eye. I doggedly pursue him. Yeah, he probably is a bit hungry. Here we go. I'm keen to wolf down Alan's research, hoping for some definitive answers. Do you think that Gibbs could have jumped from the plane? No. The plane would be flying in hilly territory if he's to jump, and he jumps from more than, I would say, about 10 feet, he's going to injure himself. If he uh, jumps from the sort of height which would allow the plane to carry on and clear the obstacles, he's going to kill himself. And if he jumps, uh, who is directing the plane back onto the approach to the runway? Could he have been wearing a parachute? <laughs> well, I don't think so. This is 1975, and I believe RAF parachutes that were used in light aircraft were quite bulky. A parachute of that sort would have packed you out from a seat in the Cessna to the extent, I think, of interfering with fore-and-aft movement of the control column. Right. And if it's in a more or less stable configuration, I think you try to give yourself 1,500 feet. I'm making progress. He didn't jump and he didn't wear a parachute. So what about the lack of salt water and sea organisms? It's been pointed out to me by a local diver, and there are plenty of highly qualified divers in this part of the world, that places off the coast like Lochs, uh, Loch Broom, that uh, we're very close to just at the moment, can have a deep layer of fresh water on them. And I was told that this can even be the case if there isn't a major inflow from a river. So presumably this uh, fresh water is running off the hillside and depending on the wind direction and depending on the tide, it doesn't flow out. Right. So this particular person who was talking to me said he sometimes dives through five feet of fresh water before he gets to salt water. So one way or another, rainwater could produce a salt solution. But Alan isn't convinced that Peter swam ashore and climbed up the hill to his death. There's almost continuous vertical wall of rock. Yeah, yeah there's a small some cliff. Some of it is a metre high, some of it is two, some of it is three metres high, and relatively few gaps. Now, this is the climb that I attempted in the company of my husky. Uh, right. My husky pulls pretty hard, is pretty eager, and in about 40 minutes I got halfway to the point where the body was found. There were points where I had to turn around to go back, it was boggy. I could not make it myself in daylight. Right. If I have a reputation at all, which is in question, I would stake every last bit of it on the fact that nobody swam directly ashore and climbed up that hill in the dark. So what did happen? Alan Organ doesn't soft-pedal on the answer. I had a friend at my school, Warwick School, called Nigel, and to cut things short, he could see in the dark. Someone like this would be an enormous asset to somebody wanting to do a bit of, um, I don't know, picking up and dropping off uh, without being making too much of a, a scene of it, wouldn't they? For, for some legitimate purpose, some nefarious purpose, uh, who knows? So just take me through this then. The body on the hill is Peter Gibbs, but he was never in the plane at all. That is what I personally am convinced of. Can't prove it, it will never be proven, short of a deathbed confession or somebody finding that the aircraft had a, a black box recorder. Uh, one will never, ever know, but I think what one goes for, if you're looking for something approaching a solution, is 50 little arrows all pointing in the same direction. Those arrows being the anomalies of this case, 
such as the excessive time the Cessna spent warming up, the moving torches suggesting a third person on the runway, the lack of scratches on Peter's body despite a challenging steep climb. And he can only see another pilot, a Nigel, as the solution. But no second body has ever been found, so I keep the 50 little arrows in my quiver and instead take a shot at meeting Professor of Psychology John Golding, a nautical and aeronautical expert, to target him with two crucial questions. Could Gibbs have survived the swim? And if so, why on earth would he walk up that hill? In his office, he brings up the data. In a water temperature of nine degrees, do we know how long someone is going to last? Yes. I mean, unless you're wearing specific protection, you can see from survival curves that at water temperature of 10 degrees, the average survival time is one hour. Right. So how far did he have to swim? Well, we think about 300 yards. And that's at sea, that's not the swimming pool. I don't know how fast a swimmer he was, but it might have taken him a good half an hour to do that. Yeah. So he'd be already halfway through to the average time to death. What's that going to do to his mind? Well, the first thing you get when you hit cold water is you get a gasp reflex, and that's why many people drown. Then you've got the steady effects of heat loss, and ultimately, before you actually drown or die of cold, you're going to go into coma, and before that, your mental processes are going to get confused, blurred, and one of those aspects will be disorientation. So the swim would have been tough, but possible, and with side effects. As soon as he stood up, something else would have happened. Blood would have started to drain away from his brain. If you've been in cold water where the water pressure has been pressing on you and you're pulled out suddenly, that can actually be quite lethal. One of the instructions for taking people from cold water if you're rescuing them is try to take them out horizontally and not vertically. So, so just the act of becoming upright yeah, is going right, yeah. to help disorientate yes, you. Yeah. And then, for some reason, he then chooses to climb a hill. He climbs about 400 feet up a hill. If this was at night, it would be a reasonably sensible strategy to get high as you can to actually try and see where you are. He seems to have crossed a road, a smooth tarmac road, and then started climbing without apparently being aware that he was on a road. If there was a moon shining on the road, he could see the reflection if it was tarmacked. But if it was quite dark, that's possibly not true either. I think you said it was sleeting. Yes. At night, it can be obvious even in the dark, from the sense of touch. But if he's been in the water that long, his feet probably feel like little pieces, chunks of wood. And his hands have probably got very little sensation. Mm. I don't know if you ever tried paddling in very, very cold water. Mm. After a while, it is like walking on pieces of wood. As I type up my notes for Tracy, I decide the time is right to use the joke about mulling things over. Mulling over the evidence, I found this impetuous and talented man who had shot down flying bombs, landed planes by candlelight and shocked the musical world with his antics, had created an enigmatic aura around himself that spun on uncontrollably after his death. The many apparently suspicious or improbable turns in the story make it tempting to look for elaborate plots, but sharpening my trusty Occam's razor, I think the simplest explanation is probably the most likely. Gibbs clambered out of the Cessna after it hit the freezing water and somehow made the swim ashore, but at the cost of such disorientation and numbness that he ignored the road back to the hotel and staggered up the hill in thick sleet to try and get his bearings. It was almost a miraculous escape, but it ended tragically when he slipped or sat down to rest and died of exposure. 
this could well be a case where the improbable is actually the most probable. Or is it? Punt P.I. was produced by Sarah Bowen. Tracy was played by Jessica Turner. And that was the last in the current series, but you can download all the investigations by searching online for the Punt P.I. download.